2: Come in and know that you are welcome to the Nook, to Tales to Terrify, to show number 64. My name is Lawrence Santoro, and let there be a few words tonight before we embrace this evening's tale-telling. So gather round my voice, have a listen. We who dip into the fictive horrors of mortality— and examine the things that may lurk in the darkness beyond, can sometimes forget death is real and comes for everyone. Indeed, that may be one reason we embrace this genre, those of us who do embrace it, to deny the terror implicit in having been born in life, that dread of something after death, the undiscovered country, the dreams that come when... You know, we horror readers, writers, lovers, explore those supposed dreams and return from them to sunlight and smiles. We survive and life goes on. But there is death. And last week we lost two great writers to it. British master James Herbert and American master Rick Hautula. I knew James Herbert only by his work. I have a few factoids. He began his writing career with the novel The Rat. He followed it with The Fog. I recommend them both. Two very effective works of horror in a science fiction frame. He then moved into supernatural horror with his third novel, Survivor, and was equally effective there. And from here, I will let you look him up. And if you're not familiar with his work, I suggest you mend your ways And I'll make the same suggestion if you're not familiar with Rick Hautala. That's H-A-U-T-A-L-A. Rick and I met a few times here and there, as these things go in this little world of horror. I didn't know him, no, not well. We met for the first time, I believe, at Nikon. That's the best writers' conference there is, to my way of thinking. Rick was a big guy, wearing Hawaiian shirts, friendly, approachable. Well, just go. Examine his work. You will like it. I believe you'll like it. Very much. What I want to say with regards to Rick's passing, however, is to read part of a note that Rick's sometimes writing partner, Christopher Golden, sent out to the world. He said, Dear friends, I don't have the words to put Rick Houdala's death in any form of context. His wife, Holly, told me this morning that it's blown a crater in her life, and that's as good an image as any I could imagine. The life of a freelance writer is often lived on the fringes of financial ruin, and Rick struggled mightily to stay afloat in recent years. Just within the last couple of months, that struggle became difficult enough so that he could not afford to continue paying his life insurance bill, and he allowed it to lapse. Though he could never have foreseen it, the timing could not have been worse. Then, just this morning, Holly discovered that the Social Security benefits she might hope to receive as Rick's widow are not available to her until she turns sixty three years from now. Efforts are underway on projects that we hope will earn some money for Rick's estate. But meanwhile, there are costs involved with his death to consider. And then, for Holly, the struggle will continue. If you would like to help, any donation would be appreciated. You can PayPal directly to Holly at Newstein at hotmail.com. And that's signed, Christopher Golden. I'll put that information at the bottom of our homepage at tales dot terrifycom When word reached me of Rick's passing and Christopher Golden's message arrived to outline what is probably a not uncommon series of events in today's world, I wondered what we horror readers, writers, fans, and friends could do for Holly's and Rick's family. I'm Sure, we can contribute. I'm certain that would be appreciated. But another thought wasn't too far from that one, simply stated, buy his books. Rick was prolific. Thirty or so novels, a hundred published tales or thereabouts. There's a lot of his work out there. And if you don't know him, you should, I urge you, go to Amazon or your purveyor of choice and pick up a book or two or three or more, apart from being of aid to Holly and the family. You'll be glad you did. He is a terrific writer. And we'll miss him. Okay. If you are now unwrapped, fed, hydrated, warmed, snuggled, turn your attention, please, to Mr. Kevin Lucia and his March inning of Horror 101. Tonight, Kevin's in the house again, and, well, listen... Kevin?
1: Somewhere behind the cloud lid the sun was setting. A dull red glow seeped through and touched the mainland. Witch house stood up black against it, peering into the dusk that was descending upon the waters. The purple glass was windows, more clouded, more opaque than ever, shone balefully in that red-reflected light, with a murky luridness, as though within had been the flames of hell. Welcome to another edition of Horror 101 here at Tales to Terrify. Once again, I'm your host, Kevin Lucia, and we're continuing on in our examination of the house motif in the roots of the horror genre. A quick review. Last time, we talked about houses and what lies beneath them. We talked about liminal spaces and how transgressing those spaces, especially spaces beneath us and beneath the house, has consequences as we encounter alien other things lurking beneath the places that we call home, that we call sanctuary. The works we discussed last time were The Rats in the Walls and The Horror at Red Hook by H.P. Lovecraft and The House on the Borderlands by William Hope Hodgson. Tonight, we're going to look at The House as a Living Thing, an entity with its own will. Hence, uh, my title for tonight's episode, Born Bad or It's Alive. Our works tonight will be The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson and Witch House by Evangeline Walton. I'd like to begin an examination of tonight's first work, The Haunting of Hill House, by Shirley Jackson, with a quote from one of the main characters in Ghost Hunter, Dr. James Montag. Essentially, the evil is in the house itself, I think. It has enchained and destroyed its people and their lives, and it is a place of contained ill will. One of the reasons I think that The Haunting of Hill House is such a seminal novel in the genre, despite the fact that it's wonderful and it's surprisingly lyrical, and it's also an excellent character study of Eleanor Vance, which we'll get to later, is that it sets down a very nice model of the house as a living thing. Now, I can't claim in my survey of all these works that this was the first work that did that but it's certainly one of the most well-known works and even in the first paragraph which we're going to look at here in just a little bit it establishes almost all of the central motifs to the idea of a haunted house as being a living entity that preys on its inhabitants allow me to read you the first paragraph of the haunting of hill house no live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and katydids are supposed, by some, to dream. Hill-house, not sane, stood by itself against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood so for eighty years, and might stand for eighty more. Within, walls continued upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there walked alone. Now this passage, this opening passage to the novel, is very evocative for several different reasons, because some of the things it suggests have gone on, I believe, to become tropes in this kind of story. First of all, our introduction, our very first paragraph, suggests that Hill House is an organism. It is alive. And also suggests that Hill House is not sane, so it's not a benevolent entity. Uh, It tells us it's been around forever, and will probably be around forever. And it implies to us that Hill House, and whatever walks inside Hill House, is lonely and waiting. A quick summary of our backstory. Since its construction, Hill House has seen nothing but death. Two wives die. The wives of Hugh Crane, the man who built Hill House, in fact, one of them didn't even get a chance to see the house. She had just been married, was in a carriage riding to the house, and the carriage gets into an accident hits a tree. She doesn't even get a chance to get into the house. And then, eventually, there's two daughters of Hugh Crane end up living there. They grow up. One of the daughters comes back and assumes control of the home with a younger female companion. The older daughter... The older woman, the daughter, she ends up dying, old and alone, and the companion, after some legal wrangling, gets a hold of the house, and she spends her final days there haunted by something, convinced that the townspeople don't like her, they're breaking into the house and tormenting her, and she ends up hanging herself from one of the turrets, thus completing the cycle of death in Hill House, and ever after... Owners and tenants are always uncomfortable there. And uh, it's implied to us that they're not just uncomfortable, that they've probably fled from this house in in terror. Um, No one ever really stays long. And in fact, the current owners just kind of own it. Nobody lives there. Nobody really wants to. We come to the present, and Dr. James Montag is a ghost hunter. And he is looking for a place where he can chronicle supernatural events. So he invites three people to stay with him at Hill House, two women uh, who he believes have supernatural psychic occurrences in their background, and the son, or son or nephew, I believe, um, of the current owner of the house. Because if someone owns the house in a state, they don't live there, but the uh, the son or nephew of the p- people who own this house, he as a representative of the estate, they all come and they stay there. And the purpose there is to spend an undetermined uh, amount of time at Hill House, chronicling all the supernatural events that occur and boy do they have supernatural events that occur so these things do happen but a little bit of a spoiler alert we don't ever see a ghost here in the house Okay, there are plenty of occurrences, like strange noises, thundering on the doors, cold spots, voices that sound like other people in the party but just kind of lead them astray. There are phantom dogs barking outside, messages scrawled on walls, pathways that seem to reform and change, and doors that are always closing, but there's no one who haunting this house in the end you know we don't discover a secret grave or someone was murdered and buried and now there are ghosts lurking in vengeance we never find that it's just the house it's bad it's wrong it's a house whose doors seem to always close shortly after someone passes through them even after in one scene they all prop every single door open They turn around, the doors have now closed. Uh, Inside the house, the halls, they're like a labyrinth that seem to change at will. And even the construction of Hill House seems off. If you'll allow me again to read another excerpt that really uh, displays that for us. No human eye can isolate the unhappy coincidence of line and place Suggests evil in the face of a house and yet somehow a manic juxtaposition a badly turned angle some chance meeting of roof and sky turned hill house into a place of despair the face of hill house seemed awake with a watchfulness from the blank windows and a touch of glee in the eyebrow of a cornice this passage, along with several others, where the characters are outside, looking at the house and looking at how the angles of the house don 't seem to be right the The corridors seem to turn at strange angles. The construction of the turrets and that, that the exterior of the house just doesn 't seem to add up and leaves them with this feeling of unease, that a house is not supposed to look like this. A more chilling effect also, too, is the description of the bedroom that our main narrator, who we're going to talk about in just a little bit, Eleanor Vance, when she goes into her bedroom for the first time, her reaction to it, this place where she's going to sleep at her most vulnerable. Eleanor shook herself, turning to see the room complete. It had an unbelievably faulty design, which left it chillingly wrong in all its dimensions, so that the walls seemed always in one direction a fraction longer than the eye could endure, and in another direction a fraction less than the barest, tolerable length. This is where they want me to sleep, Eleanor thought incredulously. What nightmares are waiting, shadowed in those high corners? What breath of mindless fear will drift across my mouth?' And she shook herself again. Really, she told herself. Really, Eleanor. And jumping ahead to our other selection tonight, Witch House by Evangeline Walton, we see this aspect is active in that novel as well. For other reasons as we will we'll examine in a little bit, but regardless, that same idea of wrongness in the house's very construction exists in that novel as well, expressed in the following passage. How is it strange, said dr Carew, this is what you call the house inside the house? She said vaguely, her eyes growing glassy. Strange. Shapes change, and sizes. The rooms are different, bigger and blacker and longer, and the channels are full of things, creatures. Or sometimes the rooms get smaller, fewer, and the furnishings change and change, like the scenes in a kaleidoscope, and I see the people in the portraits walking about in them. And I have to pause here to mention two excellent, more current renditions of this motif um, in uh, two modern novels that really play with the idea of the very construction of a house being wrong. The first one is No Doors, No Windows by Joe Schreiber. In that novel, right away, in this house, which of course is, is gifted through inheritance, and ironically we have a man who wants to be an author who suddenly can't write anywhere else but in this house, Right away we get a sense of wrongness in very simply how the interior of the house is constructed. It's a very small thing where the angles where the floors and the walls and the ceiling meet are strangely smooth and rounded and curved. So there's this odd spherical sense in all the rooms where the eye expects these sharp corners, and there's this really drifting uh, lingering sense of unease because our main character just sees these softened corners where there shouldn't be any and there are halls that lead places they shouldn't depending on what time of day they go them hidden rooms um, and that's an, that's an excellent uh, example of this another one of course be the uh, Stephen King and Peter Straub's wonderful black house you know in that case we have a house uh, built out in the woods uh, that is bigger on the inside. Its halls seem to go on forever. Um, even looking at this house or being around it on the outside makes you physically sick uh, and ill. And of course, this house has a counterpart in like a hell dimension, which is ironically not unlike the counterpart we see uh, in the house on the Borderlands. So again, just two two really nice examples of modern variations on this house that is just quote unquote built wrong. One element that seems to spring up very often in these stories is the concept of some sort of symbiosis developing between a house and a character, or in some cases the house singles out a character and starts working its will upon them. This becomes actually essential uh, a pivotal theme in Hill House um, in the development of our primary narrator, Eleanor Vance. Eleanor' is a thirty-something single woman who's lived a sheltered, lonely life. We could describe her as being mildly bitter, although she plays off that well and uh, you know suppresses it, uh, but she's had to spend her entire life caring for her sick, domineering mother. Uh, and the mother's just died. Um, and the sad, tragic irony is, even though Eleanor, even though Eleanor is now "quote unquote" free, she has nowhere to go. She has nowhere to live. Uh, so even though she's free from her mother for the first time, she has no life of any kind. Um, and she comes to Hill House, even as is intimated to us that Hill House is waiting for someone. as lonely. Here comes Eleanor Vance, a mentally unstable woman um, who's had nothing her whole life and has nothing, and she's yearning for something. So in this case, she becomes an excellent mirror for the manifestations of Hill House. And here I have to give out a, uh, a shout-out to a listener who commented on episode 48. And to everyone else who's commented, there's a lot of people who have commented so far, and I definitely plan on giving you all shout-outs. Some people have just commented on things that I haven't gotten to yet. Uh, but I would like to, to give a shout-out to a John Dodds who uh, said in his comment, I'm going to quote his comment on episode 48, to add to Kevin's comments on the nature of haunted houses in psychological terms, And in The Interpretation of Dreams, the house, of course, represents the person and the rooms and so on, aspects of the human being, from dark corridors to locked rooms. This, in its own way, fits Hill House perfectly, because as we understand from the very beginning that Hill House is insane, as the novel develops, we wonder more and more about Eleanor's sanity, Um, and we even begin to, to mistrust it. From the very beginning, from Eleanor's first thoughts on her way to the house. And again, allow me a quick quick quote here. "'Will I,' Eleanor thought, "'will I get out of my car and go between the ruined gates and then... Once I am in the magic oleander square, find that I have wandered into a fairyland protected poisonously from the eyes of people passing? Once I have stepped between the magic gateposts, will I find myself through the protective barrier, the spell broken? I will go into a sweet garden with fountains and low benches and roses trained over arbours and find one path jeweled, perhaps, with rubies and emeralds, soft enough for a king's daughter to walk upon with her little sandaled feet, and it will lead me directly to the place which lies under a spell. I will walk up low stone steps, past stone lions guarding, and into a courtyard where a fountain plays and the queen waits, weeping for the princess to return, and we shall live happily ever after. So this is Eleanor's psychological state before she ever gets to the house. So as the house is waiting for someone, Eleanor is desperately searching for something. And we also have this repeated refrain in Eleanor's head that she's heard from a scrap of poetry or a song somewhere. She repeats it almost like a mantra that, quote, journeys end in lovers' meeting. End quote. and we're led to believe that she keeps quoting this self this to herself because she's feeling an attraction to the uh, the young nephew um, who, you know who's part of the family who owns the house, but toward the end of the book, there's a much more ominous take on this, especially when one of the supernatural occurrences is scrawled on the walls of Hill House, we have this message quote. Come home, Eleanor. Help Eleanor. Come home, Eleanor. At that point, we know that where we begin to suspect that this journey that's going to end in lovers meeting um, is going to be Eleanor in the house. Um, And again, as the novel progresses, she hears voices talking to her. A ghostly hand holds hers at night in bed. Uh, There's a dream that kind of steals over her and makes her walk out on this weekend terrace. And it just becomes very evident. These two are destined, the House and Eleanor, to, to be drawn to each other. And in many ways, the ending of Hill House is truly chilling because the ending is simply a reiteration of the introductory paragraph, you know, that after all is said and done, after Eleanor has been claimed and the cycle of death has been completed, whatever walks in Hill House still walks, and it still walks alone. A cool amendum to Hill House is the story that, when I came across this in my research, it's on a trip to New York, Shirley Jackson saw what she called a grotesque house, one that was so evil-looking she had nightmares about it. Of course, like every good writer, nightmares prompted her to think, well, this would be an excellent uh, idea. She'd read an early article about parapsychologists meeting in a house and reporting their findings, and she thought it was interesting that the story wasn't really all that haunting, but it was interesting that these parapsychologists were really telling more about their own personal lives um, and how their personal lives were interacting with the house than any really haunting. So she had, you know, germinating this idea for Hill House. Um, So she investigated this house a little bit and found that the exterior was just a shell and the inside had been gutted by a fire. Later, she came across a picture in a magazine that was very, very similar to this house. Um, And again, Because she was working around this idea of Hill House, she uh, made an investigation into this house and discovered that the house that looks so much like the grotesque house that gave her nightmares was actually built by her grandfather. So uh, cue the Twilight Zone music, if you will, on that one. Our second selection tonight is Witch House by Evangeline Walton, and it bears many similarities to Hill House in this house-is-alive motif, but it resolves much differently. Like Hill House, Witch House is seen as evil, has been evil since its very construction. But unlike Hill House, Witch House has acted more like a sponge, Uh, soaking up the evil from a whole family of wizards and witches and warlocks. Um, And the house becomes an evil entity, or at least it seems to, directly from the family's long association with black magic and sorcery. And again, this is a common element. I could even remember Um, Not that I ever want to talk about my own fiction very much, but in my first stumbling efforts in writing a story, even with the the meager amount of horror genre background I had, the very first story I wrote, I think the first line of that story was about a haunted house. The first line of that story I wrote was, the house had seen many things. So this is something I think it's, you know... Maybe because it's a very common motif because especially an ancestral house has had a progression of families in it. I think it's just kind of a very natural inclination or idea that we have that a house absorbs, you know, what has occurred there. Anyway, in the present of the novel, we have an occult specialist or detective, a Dr. Gaylord Carew, And he's asked to visit Witch House to aid a little girl named Betty Ann Stone, who's the youngest and most innocent heir to the De Quincey um, heritage. Um, She's been tormented day and night by an evil that tortures her and torments her. It taunts her, plays tricks on her. And like Eleanor Vance, uh, it's apparent that Betty Ann, unfortunately, has been singled out by the house. not unlike her, as she's being driven to some point. However, there's a slightly different setup here in that uh, Betty Ann and her mother, her widowed mother, Elizabeth Ann Quincy Stone, they can't leave because there's a will that's made out by, we we presume we're led to believe she's an evil matriarch, her name is Sarai Quincy, Betty Ann's basically grandmother um, or great-grandmother, that decrees that Elizabeth and her two cousins, brothers Joseph and Quincy Lee, stay at witch house for a period of 10 years in order to receive the family inheritance. Of course, what the family inheritance turns out to be is a little bit different than what was implied, but this is also a reoccurring motif motif. I think in these stories that to stay here at this house, if you survive this house, whatever, you know, you're going to receive the fortune or the inheritance like Hill house. Which house seems very much alive its appearance is very brooding the interior often changes at will portraits look as if they're alive and looking at you we have random bursts of telekinetic uh, activity just wrecks havoc but there's something different and, and there's some debate here as to whether or not the house is evil or if indeed a ghost or an echo of evil old Sarai Quincy is haunting Betty Ann trying to possess her or a mother, trying to turn them toward a path of evil. Because in this novel, that family inheritance, follow the family, you know, not to be glib, but come over to the dark side. That's a very you know powerful theme in this novel. The plot thickens as we learn of both Joseph and Quincy Lee's Elizabeth's cousins, therefore Betty Ann's uncles, uh, dark inheritance, evil sorcery, you know, going all the way back to predecessors that first built the house, and how Elizabeth not only was originally a willing participant, but she was actually supposed to marry Joseph, her cousin, and kind of ascend to a full witchhood and embrace the darkness that now almost throbs and beats in the very wood of witch house. And we have a spoiler alert here through this we end up learning that joseph is behind all the supernatural events of witch house because he's been tormenting betty and all along a lot like um the House in the Brain, which we covered in, in an earlier bro- broadcast, turns out that Joseph Lee is a really powerful mage. He's the one that's been activating all these supernatural occurrences. And he's been tormenting Betty Ann all along with the intention of swooping in and then healing her himself to gain Elizabeth's favor back so he can bring her back and get married and bring her back into this dark inheritance and uh, fulfill the will of the house. So Joseph is the one who's making all these supernatural events happen, but there's still the idea that his will, Sarah Quincy's will, And the house's will are the same thing, that he's merely serving his family and the house's will
2: itself. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door.
1: So we still have that idea of, in this case, Hill House has always been bad, which house became bad over the years and now has developed an evil consciousness of its own. Even though Joseph is the one making everything happen, he decrees that he's doing it to serve the house. And an interesting side note here at the end it comes to mind to me that Dr. Gaylord Carew, which again is another occult detective, who ends up piecing all this together and saving Elizabeth and Betty Ann. I've seen him copied in a lot of other books, most specifically by the late horror author J.N. Williamson uh, and his reoccurring occult detective, uh, Reuben Martin, who's a Jewish parapsychologist, investigates cases much like those presented in Witch House. And it's interesting because both Dr. Carew and Dr. Uh, Reuben Martin have interesting Uh, intersection of ideas of religious and spiritual nature because reuben martin is actually jewish and their feelings of the supernatural and again i have no proof that jan williamson based him i don't think that what i just find is it's interesting as as i continue my formal reading of the genre i'm just always intrigued by the little bits and pieces that connect. I think it was Noel Carroll in The Philosophy of Horror that says horror as a genre is distinctive because it's a shared inheritance that we writers keep repeating these motifs you know, in honorarium and homage. And it's always interesting to see those things pop up. And this concludes another edition of Horror 101. Please feel free to comment on the page here at uh, Tales of Terrify or over at the Facebook uh, group, Horror 101, Exploring the Roots of the Horror Genre. And until next time, keep reading.
2: Thank you, Kevin. No, 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 I assure you. Kevin and Mike Allen did not get together and decide to discuss Hill House and The Haunting of Hill House as a joint effort for this month. It's simple synchronicity, after all. It's a great book. It's a great film. It's just out there. So, I will see you next month, Kevin. Fiction Tonight's tale is from Jason Andrew. Jason Andrew lives in Seattle, Washington, with his wife, Lisa, and as with many of us, he spent his Saturdays as a child watching creature feature classics on the tube and scribbling in his writing tablet. At age six, he finished his first short story, The Wolfman Eats Perry Mason. It was, he reports, severely rejected and caused his grandmother to watch him very closely for the next few years. Now, though, he is a mild-mannered technical writer by day, and by night he writes stories of the fantastic and occasionally fights crime on the page or on the computer screen. As a member of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America the Horror Writers Association, and the International Association of Media Tie-In Writers. Jason has had short fiction and publications such as Shine, an anthology of Optimistic SF from HarperCollins, in Frontier Cthulhu, Ancient Horrors in the New World from Chaosium, and in Dagan Books' In Situ, In 2011, his story Moonlight in Scarlet received an honorable mention in Ellen Datlow's list for the best horror of the year. Here is Jason Andrews' The Dead Man's Hand.
0: On the steamship voyage from San Francisco to Seattle, Phineas Bagley won three thousand dollars in a poker game while sipping his customary olive martini. He had planned to spend a quiet, leisurely trip on the upper passenger deck. He might have resisted the temptation to gamble if a young lad had not overheard his name mentioned by the concierge. The boy gingerly approached Phineas, holding a weathered copy of a dime novel titled Wild West Stories. Are you Phineas Bagley?" Phineas had not been considered young in several decades, but his eyes still gleamed with boyish charm. He had gained a small pooch in his belly, but he was still an impressive figure clad in velvet. "'I have that dubious honor, son. Is it true that you saw Wild Bill draw the dead man's hand?' The old man rolled his eyes and then wiped his brow. I did indeed witness that unfortunate tragedy. After that various passengers constantly harangued him to recall the dreadful night. Of course he told the popularized version of the evening's events—' If he had told them the truth, he would have been labelled a madman. It was quite arduous, but then he never had to pay for a single meal or drink. Several men wanted to play poker with one of the men that had been playing poker, when Wild Bill Hickok drew the infamous Aces and Eights in black, and was murdered by Jack McCall. Phineas was careful to avoid winning too much. Professional gamblers sometimes paid scouts to watch opponents for their tells. There was a big game in Seattle, perhaps the biggest of his career. Phineas made a strong effort to keep his winnings low, but several traveling businessmen insisted on making colossal blunders. He prided himself on being an honest gambler and an occasional scoundrel. Many sharpers were rogues that cheated to win. Still he could use the extra money to build a stake. He wasn't entirely certain how much money was required to enter this game. He only knew that this game would be his last chance for immortality." As soon as the ship reached port, he hailed a carriage and passed along a note with an address. The coachman winked, and Phineas suspected he was well acquainted with the destination. The landscape of the Puget Sound was lush, with vibrant colors of green and brown. Seattle was a small camp built into the middle of a series of murky mudflats. The trip from the docks was quite bumpy, as the driver attempted to dodge several of the potholes in the dirt road. Some of them were several feet deep and filled with foul-smelling water. The carriage slid to a stop, jerking Phineas forward and knocking the boulder off his head. He glanced out the window to see one of the only brick-buildings in the camp. He stepped out over another mud-puddle and was warmly greeted by a short, boisterous woman of many curves and charms. "'Phineas Bagley, it's about time you showed up, you old scoundrel!' Phineas kissed her lightly upon the cheek. "'Miss Lou Graham, it is my privilege and honour to see you once again, although I am unaware that I had announced my arrival.' She grinned slyly. I run the best brothel and gambling-hall in three states. Not much happens in this town that I don't hear about in the morning over toast and coffee,' Lou curtsied Riley, and when I found out what deck they would be playing with, I knew that you would be arriving soon enough. Phineas wiggled his eyebrows and leaned closer. "'As I hope, my beautiful dove, alas, while I have heard news of the pending game, I have not yet secured arrangements for an invitation.' Lou fluttered her eyes. "'Such arrangements might be nigh on impossible,' I have seen man and beast with better clothing and fatter wallets turned away. She whispered into his ear, But it might be possible that I know of a potential benefactor for your cause. How much would such information cost, my ever-succulent lamb-chop? Lou's eyes narrowed. Fifteen percent. Phineas scoffed. Would you take my shirt and shoes, then? Five percent. Lou rubbed her chin with her forefinger. Ten percent. And a free room. Phineas took her hand and kissed it. My dear, we have an understanding between us. Lou's smile returned. You want to find Louis Borey. He's a local Jew doctor. He has a stake in the game but doesn't play cards. I've heard that he's looking for a proxy. Phineas rubbed his hands together eagerly. I've heard many stories of him in other circles. Well, then, Miss Lou, if you would honor my arm by escorting me to the tables. The gambling den smelled of sweat, tobacco, booze, and cheap perfume, which suited Phineas nicely. Lou had five poker tables, all of them busy. Customers gulped drinks at an ornate wooden bar. Several of Lou's soiled doves were plying their trade. Some were dancing for twenty-five cents a song. Others were hawking drinks, or other more intimate pleasures. Lou gestured to a dark, curly-haired man that appeared to be no older than twenty. Phineas frowned. That cannot be Bory. Surely it is his son. The man should be pushing forty, if the stories are true. I've known him for fifteen years, and he's never aged a day, Lou shrugged. Everyone is too afraid to call him on it. He might look like a tenderfoot, but he can turn a man yellow with just a word. He's a real curly wolf, that one. Bory was a thin, frail-looking man with delicate features. He was studying the various games, tracking the winners and losers. Lou tugged him towards the center of the room amongst the tables and players. Pick a table and we'll cash you in, Mr. Bagley. We'll have your room ready for you when you're tired. It was said loudly enough that several turned their heads from their various activities to take a look at the new player. Now the gamblers knew that he had money, and if Lou's attentions were an indication, quite a bit of it. Phineas closed his eyes and listened to the shuffling of the decks. The familiar rhythm of cards shuffling brought a grin to his face. He listened for a few seconds, then scowled. Alas, Miss Lou, I regret that I cannot play cards in this establishment. Several of the gamblers craned their necks to listen. He pointed at a thin, gaunt man that had been shuffling the cards. The dealer is cheating. The players at the table reached for their guns. Lou pulled a derringer from her garter belt and shot into the air. Wait, wait! My games are all clean, according to Hoyle. She glared at Phineas. You'd best explain yourself. Phineas held up his own hands in the air, palms up. If I may demonstrate. Lou wagged a finger at him. You had better be right. We take accusations of cheating dead serious around here. Phineas winked. What was the high card from the hand? Ace of spades, a ruffian replied. He had a small pile of chips and a peacemaker revolver in his hand, and wasn't in a mood to be too particular about who he used it on. Phineas reached across the table and scooped the deck of cards into his hands. Let's just deal face up and see what would have happened. He expertly dealt the players their hands, in the same order as the round would have played. Deuce of clubs, five of diamonds, six of hearts, and the ace of spades. The burly man with the dusty rancher's hat snarled defensively. He had the largest pile of chips at the table. That just proves I am lucky. He leveled his six-shooter at Phineas, but the other three players were aiming their weapons towards him. The gaunt man cocked his pistol and stood. You cheating, Bart? You ain't ever had a lucky streak like this. The dealer started sweating. He raised his hands gingerly. That don't prove nothing. Phineas nodded solemnly. That, my lad, is very true, but let us continue and see what fate the cards had for these players. He quickly dealt through the rest of the deal. BART DREW THE ACE OF CLUBS, THE ACE OF DIAMONDS, AND THE FIVE OF HEARTS. THAT, MY FRIENDS, IS A HANDSOME HAND. LOU aimed HER DERRINGER TO THE BACK OF THE DEALER'S HEAD. HOW'D HE DO IT? THERE IS A RATHER UNIQUE SOUND TO DEALING FROM THE BOTTOM OF THE DECK. IT IS A HARD THUMP, BUT WITH THE NOISE IN THIS ROOM, HARDLY NOTICEABLE UNLESS YOU'RE LISTENING FOR IT. Phineas WAVED HIS HAND OVER THE COVERED POKER TABLE. THAT IS WHY STEAMBOATS ON THE MISSISSIPPI ONLY ALLOW HARD WOOD TABLES. Lou cocked her derringer and patted the dealer on the shoulder. He closed his eyes, shaking, fighting tears. "'Sorry, Pete. You know the rules.' Phineas quietly sipped a martini, annoyed that there were no olives to be had in Seattle. The ruckus from the gunfight had died down, and he was weary. He wanted to go to his room, minus the complimentary dancing girl, but he had waited for Bory to approach him. He did not have to wait long. "'I have heard a great deal about you, Mr. Bagley,' Phineas nodded. It would seem that the deeds of my youth have been wildly exaggerated. Lou informs me that we have common business interests. He gestured to a side room. Shall we speak in private? Of course, Doctor Bory. Your reputation is well known. Bory strode to a door on the side of the bar, opened it, and bowed. Phineas followed and entered first, secretly gripping his pistol. Bory followed and closed the door behind them, locked it, and then gestured to two comfortable-looking plush chairs. PLEASE SIT, MR. BAGLEY. I AM GOING TO ENSURE THAT HER CONVERSATION REMAINS PRIVATE. HE PULLED A SMALL BEAKER FROM HIS JACKET POCKET AND PULLED OUT THE WOODEN CORK. IT WAS FILLED WITH A WHITE, MILK-LIKE FLUID. HE DROPPED A FEW DRIPS IN FRONT OF THE DOOR AND SMILED. THERE. THAT IS AS MUCH PRIVACY AS I CAN ASSURE. Phineas WASN'T CERTAIN WHAT BORI HAD JUST DONE, BUT HE DIDN'T WANT TO ASK. Bory WAS QUITE INFAMOUS FOR HIS INVOLVEMENT IN THE OCCULT. I TRUST THIS IS ABOUT THE UPCOMING GAME? BORI NODDED. YOU ARE SEEKING TO tube his deck. I am seeking a proxy to play for my interests. The winner of the evening will receive Tatuba's deck. It has become known to me that you wish to procure it. Why?' Phineas swallowed nervously. "'That damned deck of cards destroyed a great man. I have tracked it for years while learning all that I could about it. I know that it can't be destroyed, but I can prevent others from falling to its seductive charms.' "'And you believe that you can resist its siren charms?' Bore asked. "'I did once before in Deadwood with Wild Bill.' I caused him to draw the dead man's hand. Phineas finished his martini. It felt good to admit this to someone. If I had stayed in the game I would have burned off the last few cards." Bory narrowed his eyes. If that is true, then you saw what really happened. I felt uneasy and didn't know why, so I folded. I ordered a drink and stepped away from the table. After Wild Bill drew the dead man's hand, a thick black fog seeped forth from the cards. A black figure reached for Wild Bill. We were all struck with panic. It laughed maliciously mccall panicked and shot wild bill afterwards the smoke cleared and no one else there seemed to remember that part if i hadn't folded wild bill wouldn't have drawn that hand perhaps that is true however i believe that fate and the cards will not be denied does the dead man's hand always mean death phineas asked Bory shook his head sadly not as you mean it tituba's deck was made in mockery of the tarot spades for swords hearts for cups diamonds for coins and clubs for wands During play, if a player draws the correct combination of cards, it can summon the black man. The Lord of Witches. I'd heard of the legend, but hardly credited it to be true, despite what I had witnessed, Phineas protested. Ori shrugged. He is known by many names. In this guise he is the Lord of Witches. I suspect his company would be unpleasant for you. Do you know where it came from? I do, and if you agree to be my proxy, I shall explain all. What are the stakes? Phineas asked. He didn't like playing without knowing the rewards. "'Several luminaries are quarreling over matters that do not concern you. The winner of this game will be allowed to dictate certain terms that do not concern you and yours.' "'Why would they let a card game decide?' Phineas asked. "'As you know, this deck of cards is special. Unique. Some of them will consider this a form of worship.' Bory shrugged his shoulders. "'I cannot say more until I have your word that you will be my proxy.' "'What happens if I lose?' Phineas asked. "'There is no penalty for losing,' Bory grinned. "'Of course—' The game has other dangers of which you have witnessed, yes, what would have happened if McCall hadn't shot while Bill the black man would have taken him? his life would have been a series of unending torments. McCall unknowingly did him quite the favor. Forgive me for seeming rude, but why not play yourself? Phineas asked borry coughed. Gambling is not one of my skills, Mr. Bagley. This is a game that cannot be fixed or marked. Tatuba's deck won't allow it. Phineas spat in his hand and extended it. Bory rolled his eyes. "'spat in his hand, and then took his hand. "'We have a compact, then. "'I shall make the arrangements.' "'It would help me win if I knew everything about Tutuba's deck.' he nodded. "'The legend is true. Tutuba's deck was a gift from the black man to the witch Tutuba "'in Salem over two hundred years ago. "'It has the ability to tempt those who play to lose themselves in the game.' Phineas scratched his chin. "'While Bill had played like a fiend, foregoing sleep and food, "'had he been enchanted. "'Why was I able to leave the game, then?' I suspect that you view gambling as a profession, a skill. It is not mysterious, nor random, to you. Bori coughed into his handkerchief. Forgive me. I was recently poisoned, and the toxin is still working its way through my system. As you might surmise, the cards have a life of their own. Madness follows the deck everywhere. Salem is proof enough of that. Phineas thought about it a moment. You seem to know quite a bit at such a young age. Bori grinned, showing off his perfect white teeth. I assure you that I am far older than I appear. If that is so, sir, then you must have found the legendary Fountain of Youth. Bory appeared no older than twenty years. Would you care to share the secret? Perhaps. If you win this game this evening I shall give you a small taste." Lou's brothel had been closed to the public around eleven that evening. It was a very early end for the brothel, but the tournament promised that Lou would make up for every lost cent and double an average night's profits. Phineas was pleased that the arrangements had been made so quickly but learned that the other players had been waiting for Bori to select a proxy for several weeks. Whatever the stakes of the game, he realized that the contestants considered it very important. Phineas took a bath and a shave. He then dressed in his finest ensemble and tied his favorite cavette. If he was going to die gambling tonight, he wanted to ensure that he left a well-groomed and snappily dressed corpse. He descended the stairs and was surprised to see that the layout of the gaming room had been rearranged the overhead oil lamps had been removed and replaced with candles. The air of jovial excitement had been drained from the room. There was only anticipation, dread, and loathing. He had seen many strange things in the dark cracks of this world, but rarely had he felt the dread creeping into his stomach as it did as he entered the gaming-room. It smelled faintly of fish and sulfur. Ory glanced over Phineas's clothing and nodded his wry approval. He gestured for Phineas to take the fourth seat at the poker-table. Lou sat in the dealer's chair and introduced each of the players. There was a small group of presumed luminaries hidden in the shadows whispering to each other. They spoke in hideous unknown languages with clicks of the tongue and gargles of the throat. He tried to get a good look at them, but the candlelight left too many shadows for them to hide their faces. It would perhaps be better if you didn't look too closely in the shadows, Bory whispered. Phineas felt like a Christian awaiting the lions in the Colosseum. He watched the other players carefully during the first few rounds of the game. Jimmy the Shark Schultz was a lean fellow with large, bulbous eyes. His cheeks were sunken and his lips were wide, giving the impression of a fish. He knew that the shark was from the East Coast and stuck mostly to Massachusetts. Occasionally the shark won a couple of large pots in Boston, and then disappeared for years at a time. He played cautiously, slowly grinding out small wins." Dog-Eye Eric Van Hee was a swarthy, voluminous man with jet-black hair. He chewed constantly like a goat, occasionally spinning into a spittoon. Dog-Eye traveled extensively in the southern territories, occasionally making it to San Francisco. Phineas had the dubious honor of meeting Dog-Eye at a gambling house in Chinatown, where he had a pretty girl on each arm and a jug of rice wine on the table. Phineas had been able to watch him play before leaving. He played aggressively, as though each hand meant life or death. Samuel Kane was an old man with thin puffs of white hair upon his otherwise bald head. It was rare for a gambler to reach old age without retiring, willing, or via the business end of a bullet. Samuel rarely moved, as it seemed that each motion stirred pain in his joints. As his own hands had begun to creak in the mornings, Phineas very much sympathized. Samuel seemed content to play each hand and take a measure of his opponents. Although he had never heard of this man, Phineas pegged him as the potential threat. The game progressed slowly. Schultz played conservatively, while Van He raised the pot several times. It was easy enough to push dog-eye Van He out of the game. Aside from keeping count of the various cards in play, Phineas noted that Van He counted his chips every time he had a good hand. His body would tense, as though preparing to fight. Phineas, Schultz, and Samuel took turns draining Van He's chips. Two hours into the game Phineas won a hand with three of a kind. Van He growled. His cheeks flushed, and he slammed his fists down upon the table. His fingers became claw-like, ferrous and monstrous. Tiny bone horns peeked out from his thick hair. Worried, Phineas started to reach subtly for his pistol. A deep voice from the shadows silenced Van He. It chilled Phineas. Do not shame me further. Van He's shoulders slumped, and then he stood and left the table. Phineas and Samuel had piles of chips roughly the same size. Schultz trailed them by half, but he had been slowly adding to his pile. Phineas changed his strategy and started betting less and letting Schultz win a couple of hands. Samuel matched his attack, which worried him. Meanwhile, Schultz started getting more aggressive. Each win of five dollars became a loss of ten dollars in his mind. As he started winning more hands, Schultz started betting more. Phineas and Samuel fed him just a little and then pulled the chair out from under him. Schultz started losing in larger and larger quantities. Once his nerve was rattled, Schultz was desperate to win big. An hour later, he'd lost his last hand. He bowed to the table and left. "'Time for a break, gentlemen,' Lou announced. Bory handed Phineas a martini with olives. "'Thank you, kind sir. How did you ever manage to find olives?' Borey shrugged shyly and chose not to answer the question. "'You seem to be doing quite well,' Phineas scowled. "'Perhaps not, sir.' "'Explain.' "'Mr. Kane is a complete conundrum. I cannot fathom his tells.' He sipped the martini. "'Andy is good. He's playing off me as though he knows everything.' Bory took a drink of coffee. That he is, but then he has been playing for many a year. Surely I would have heard of him, Phineas protested. He knew all of the best sharps in the country. That man has had many names. I wouldn't be surprised if you did know of some of them. He is the reason I sought you. I couldn't gamble against him. Bory wiped his brow, sweating. Perhaps if you told me his story, I could play better against him. He is my third son. Phineas glanced over to Samuel Kane and took note of his advanced years and thin gray hair. Of course he is. My appearance is quite deceiving. I am master of the alchemical arts. I have lived quite well for far longer than you can imagine possible, Mr. Bagley. Why do you want your son to lose so badly? Phineas asked. Bory grimaced. If he wins, he shall face a doom hitherto unknown to this world. He's dying, isn't he? Phineas asked, suspicious. Enemies of mine poisoned all of my children. I was able to counteract the toxin, but at a price. My art can no longer prolong his life." He was condemned to a single lifetime, and now he seeks to win the approval of the black man, his immortal soul for his life. Save my son, and that which I cannot give unto him shall be yours. Phineas began the next round slowly. He wanted to prolong each hand, hoping that Samuel would become impatient. His opponent remained calm. They played for several hours, neither side taking a decisive victory. It had turned into an endurance game. Phineas drew the Queen of Hearts and the Queen of Diamonds for his two face-up cards. Samuel drew the Ace of Spades and the Eight of Clubs. Phineas started the bet at five dollars. Samuel matched it, raising it by ten. Phineas called, and then Lou dealt each of them the rest of their cards. Phineas glanced at his cards and was pleased to see three queens and a jack of diamonds. Samuel checked his cards and visibly blanched. Phineas raised the bet by fifty. Sweating, Samuel matched the raise and bet an additional five hundred. It was all of his chips. Phineas barely had enough to match it. It was a risky move, but it wasn't his money, and he had to try to win at all costs. Call. Samuel sighed. He flipped over his hand. Ace of spades, ace of clubs, eight of spades, eight of clubs, and six of clubs. The crowd gasped. It was the dead man's hand. Phineas glanced over at Bory. He had the cards to win, but wasn't sure that Bori would still want it. The alchemist nodded sadly. The room was silent like the dead. Phineas flipped over his hand. Samuel clutched his chest as the black mist began to rise from the cards, burning his fingers. Phineas dropped the cards and tried to see Samuel through the haze. He imagined Samuel's heart beating, struggling to burst through the chest. His own heart burned, his chest barely able to contain his fear. A hand formed in the mist and reached for Samuel. Father, help me! Phineas drew his pistol, aimed at Samuel's heart, and fired twice. Samuel slumped into his seat. Black blood seeped from his wound. A heinous howl erupted from the mist as it began to fade. Tell my father I understand. Borey stood over his son. He leaned over him and whispered, I am very proud of you, son. Samuel struggled to make his last few wet, raspy breaths. He reached for his father, but his muscles twitched, throwing off his aim. Bory held his son's hand and watched him die. I am very sorry, Dr. Borey, Phineas whispered. I couldn't stand to let the black man take him. Borey reached into his pocket and produced a small vial. Drink this within the hour, and all I promise shall come true. Phineas accepted the vial gratefully, and turned to scoop up the remaining cards into Tuba's deck. Thank you, Dr. Bory. I would run now, if I were you. Bory cradled his dead son in his arms. It has already started. Phineas sniffed the air. There was smoke somewhere nearby. He had not noticed it previously due to the mist. We should leave the building. Bory scoffed. I will remain here. I suggest leaving now, Mr. Bagley. Phineas slipped a tube deck into his pocket, grabbed Lou by the arm, and made his way to the door. The black smoke was thick on the city streets. "'Do you have a fire department?' "'Only a bunch of drunken volunteers,' Lou yelled. She had to yell over the screams and panic of the townspeople. As a fire swept up the street, consuming building after building, they treaded up the steep slope, hoping to escape the city limits. An explosion rocked the area as the liquor store caught fire. Exhausted, they stood on the hill, watching the city burn. He thought of Tatuba's deck, and wondered if it had caused this as punishment for denying the black man his rightful prey. He pulled out the small vial, and flipped the stopper off with his thumb. Phineas gulped the foul-smelling liquid, and fell back upon his rear. I'm ruined, Blue cried. So are we all, Miss Lou. So are we all.
2: thanks for that jason in addition to writing straightforward story on the page fiction jason has written for a number of role playing games places where he provides the framework and you live the story these have been call of cthulhu shadow run and vampire the masquerade his most recent projects include hunters hunted 2 Anarchs Unbound, both from the Onyx Path and in Chaosium's Atomic Age Cthulhu, Terrifying Tales of the Mythos Menace. Currently, Jason is associate developer for the Mind's Eye Theater line published through By Night Studios. You may follow his life, his times, and thoughts at jasonbandrew.wordpress.com. Thanks again, Jason. And, of course, thank you, Brian Esterson, for narrating Dead Man's Hand. Brian Esterson was born in Los Angeles County, making him, as he says, that rare creature a native Californian. He spent his childhood shuttling between Southern California and Phoenix, Arizona, at the whim of his parents. After a short stint in the Navy, he moved to San Jose, California, where he met his wife, Karen, Eventually, the couple moved to the high desert of Carson City, Nevada, and when Karen was claimed by Lou Gehrig's disease, he moved back to Phoenix. Brian says he prefers a good story, well told, and eschews literary fiction in favor of genre writing, mainly speculative fiction and police procedurals. Thank you again, Brian. So... There it was, children of the night, show number sixty four. I would have you be up and doing, bright and chipper, or as Carnacki might say, be off with you. Wrap yourselves for the night and the walk home. A modest effort in these now above freezing evenings, yes, yes. Oh, by the way, thank you, Chris, Chris Nesbitt, thank you. Thanks for your offer of drink and company last weekend, but alas, I had been a very bad human and left a story deadline, crowd me to the brink. So I hope you enjoyed a sunny ramble through Graceland Cemetery and do hope you got out before dark. Well, next time, hmm? And I hope you, all of you, have enjoyed this week's effort. I hope those of you of those persuasions have a good Easter, and that Passover finds you safe and secure behind blood-anointed posts and lintels. The walk home should be should be fine tonight. The weather's mild, and the sky, well, the sky. <laughs> if the South is a bit incarnadined, remember... Chicago has already had its fire a long time ago, and what you see there is just an exhalation of excess light, a great city beaming to drive away the dark. It won't harm or delay your your swift walk home, and once home you may close your curtains, bring the dark so you may enjoy the evening's pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many...